You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In our final lesson of the Hebrews Warning Module, Philip Edwards will look at some of the passages of Scripture that support and deny our eternal security. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can sign up for our latest modules, study past modules and see all the other ministries we have to offer. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. We'll start then with a word of prayer and then um, move on to this last section of Hebrews warnings. Father, we just thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, we want to discover and find truth and we want to dig into your word and we want your word to affect our lives. We know it will because there's power in the word of God. And so, Father, we just um, bring ourselves to you tonight. Holy Spirit, just minister uh, in your power in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in this uh, last study of Hebrews warnings, uh, we're going to look at a bit of a thorny issue tonight. Uh, Can a Christian lose his salvation? Or are we eternally secure? Uh, It might be something that you've thought of or you've never thought of, or you might hold an opinion and you didn't realize there was argument in the church about this. But there seems to be argument about lots of things. Uh, and, And partly it's a little bit because of the word, because the word isn't that definitive about things. It, it, it sort of points you in a direction sometimes and leaves you to work stuff out. It's, it's as though God said, I'm going to hide some things to make you dig, to make you look a bit deeper. And so if we just always look at the word of God just superficially, we won't always find truth. And we have to be careful that uh, we just don't uh, are spoon-fed. We just don't receive what people tell us. So uh, you could say, well, you're spoon-feeding us. No, I'm not. I'm going to present some things to you, but my encouragement for you always is to look at it. If I'm saying something that you've never agreed with or you don't believe, well, maybe look at it again and sort of, because we're forever coming to a knowledge of the truth and no one's got all the truth. So we're searching and you might uh, hold a a completely different opinion to me on this subject. Well, that's fine. It it doesn't matter because I could be wrong, but I'm I'm honest with you and I'm searching and digging until we we come to the truth. As a truly born-again believer then, will I enter heaven, whatever I do, between now and when Christ comes or he calls me home, does it matter that I follow him? Or are there things that possibly, uh, if I do certain things, it stops me coming into the kingdom? Can I lose this salvation that I have? Are there acts or a number of acts that if I do them, it'll deny me my place in heaven? Uh, The problem with this subject is... uh, There are many verses in the Bible that appear to say it's impossible to lose your salvation. But there's an equal number of verses that says uh, you can lose your salvation. So uh, I can't be particularly, uh, or I can't be completely 
impartial because I'm not impartial. There's a slight bias to what I say, and so I'm saying that right from the start. Uh, but we want to look at these other verses or the verses that compete with one another. Can you then come to a, a positive conclusion of whether you can lose your salvation or not? Uh, you might say, well, I'm quite happy just to hold both options because for the vast amount of Christians, they won't lose their salvation. They're happily saved. They want to be saved. There's, it's, it's not an issue. But it's obviously there in Scripture, and it serves an important uh, point. Even if we're never going to lose it, we're always going to hang on to it. But it, it gives us a perspective on God. It tells us something about God. And I hope that by the end of this evening, you're going to see God in a whole different way or better than you ever saw him before. When we open up the scriptures, we should always have a better vision of God, a clearer vision of God, and that can only get better and better. It should never diminish. As a Christian, I must admit, I've been on both sides of the argument. I was brought up in a church that said you could lose your salvation, so I just believe what I was told as growing up as a young person. And then, of course, as I started to look at it and listen to other people, I thought, oh, perhaps you can't. So I sort of put one foot in this camp. And then I read other things and was back in this camp again. And so I've sort of uh, wavered to and fro because the arguments are very strong. It depends who you're listening to or what books you're reading. So in the end, I felt it's important for me that I come to a conclusion. And then if people ask me, I can say, this is what I believe, and this is the reason I believe what I believe. But, of course, you might be still in that place of working the whole thing out. Before we look at the, uh, the scriptures related to this subject, there's two points I want to draw to your attention. The first is that salvation is a fact. It isn't a concept or an ideology or a series of thoughts, when one becomes saved, it is a work of the Holy Spirit within an individual, and certain things happen, so it, it is a thing of fact. When we give our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit does some positive things in our lives. Receiving Jesus as our Savior, then, requires a change of the will that means before you heard the gospel of salvation, before God made claims on your life, you probably thought, there is no God. I don't believe in a God. God hasn't shown himself to me. Why should I believe in a God? So you live your life as though God didn't exist. You think it's maybe, well, there are these people who believe in a God. Maybe they're weak. I don't know why. Maybe they're brought up in church. Whatever reason, they believe in God. But I don't. I have no reason to. But then when we come to Christ, our idea about God goes in a 180 degrees turn. We didn't believe in God. We do believe in God. That is a fact. You can't just change like that. It's just, but that's what happens at salvation. It's an immediate turnaround, turning your back on one thing and then uh, accepting another. The second thing about this fact of salvation is that we no longer allow the world to tell us what to think and believe. And this happened immediately at salvation. It's a work of the Spirit. So we're 
we're working or, or living in the world, and because the ideologies, the thoughts of the world, they control our thinking. We, we believe certain things about justice, or um, we might think certain things about, uh, say, abortion or something like that, because the world feeds us with these ideas, and so we take it all on board, and then when we open up the scriptures, we go, oh, that's not what the world says. The Bible says actually quite opposite from the world. So uh, what happens is, again, another one of these facts is that the Holy Spirit uh, does something in you that makes you think, this, this is true. This is true. I don't care what the world says or what it thinks, because this says quite the opposite to that. The third thing that happens, the fact of salvation, is Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of your life. So one day you're happily going along, you're in charge, you make the decisions in life, you do what you want to do, you pursue what you want to, all of a sudden you step back from that and say, no, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. He makes the decisions for me. See, that's a big thing. These are big major things that happen immediately like this at salvation. They just, they just take place. How do we get saved? We simply ask God, or his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. That's what it is. We request it. We ask him to do it. The facts about Jesus and his father are presented to us, and we say, well, I want to ask him then to be my savior. We might say something like this. Lord Jesus, if we're talking to Jesus, you just go, who do I talk to then if I want to get saved? Do I talk to the Father or talk to the Son? Well, they're not fighting about it, okay? But you might, you might express it differently. You might say something like this if you're talking to the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I have fallen short of your standard. I also realize that you died in my place at Calvary. And I now willingly accept you as my Savior and Lord, and I'm going to serve you as best as I can from now on. Thank you for saving me and making me a child of God. So you're, you're, all your reference is to him, thanking him for what he's done. If you're talking to the Father, you would say, Father, thank you for sending your Son for doing all of these things, and now make me a child of yours. So is, is, it, is it important? Well, it's funny, sometimes when I listen to people praying, they're mixing up all the time who they're talking to. And I think, oh, how confusing. God's not confused, and I'm not really confused. But it's, like, it's nice if when you're thinking about your prayers, that who are you talking to? Uh, you can pray to Jesus. You can pray to the Father. You can't pray to the Holy Spirit, but you can pray to either of those. Now, Jesus said when you pray, say, our Father. So really, our prayers should be directed at the Father, although there's no contest between the true. A prayer like this, saying those things that I said, if you say them sincerely from your heart, they'll make you a child of God. Just that will make you a child of God. See, it's a fact. You don't sort of drift into being a Christian and sort of like... Uh, you know, mosey through the whole thing. There's something definite, there's something solid about you weren't saved, and now you are saved. That prayer, that uh, sincere speaking to God from your heart, it will ensure you 
an eventual place in heaven. However, such a prayer, uh, a prayer of salvation, if we call it that, is just the start to a whole new life lived with God. There's no doubt God will want to change many, many things in your life. You might say, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm all right. Well, you might be a nice sort of person, but that doesn't make you all right with God. And so as we start reading this, we see that God's standard of all right is not our standard of all right. And his standard of all right is Jesus. And so you're thinking, oh, that's a bit of a tall order. Am I supposed to be like Jesus? Well, that's the plan. He came to show us what uh, God's idea of creating people would look like. Living in the kingdom, enjoying that relationship with him, obviously sin-free. We've got a problem in that we've always had sin natures and we were born into sin and there's sin all around us. So we are struggling in this world to, to allow him to sometimes change us allowing the Holy Spirit to convert us. But he has come to live on the inside, which makes it a whole lot easier. He's working from the inside out. He's come to transform the the heart of us, the, the very center of our being, so God is comfortable living on the inside of us. So whatever's going on in there before you come to Christ, he's got to sort all that out. It's a bit like um, if, you, if you were to buy a property. So you look around and you, you, you visit different properties and you go, oh, that's a lovely house. I'd love to have that house. So you go in and look around and, oh, it's smashing. It's ideal. It's just what I want. So you buy it. Then the first thing you do is you rip all the paper off the wall, you paint all the walls a different colour, you even pull down some walls, you, you just change everything. And you thought, I thought you loved it. Oh, I do love it. It's perfect. It's ideal. But it, I don't want it quite like this. And so when God saves you, he thinks you're absolutely wonderful. You're beautiful. He's just what he wanted. But when he gets on the end, he pulls it all around and he demolishes some walls. And, and so the Holy Spirit in this process, well, he comes to comfort us, direct us, challenge us, and then demolish things within us. So what the inside of us is fit for a king, a palace fit for a king. It wasn't fit for him before. Something else the Holy Spirit does when, when he comes, this transaction that takes place, this fact of salvation, he gives you this, what we call an assurance of salvation. You just know you're saved. <laughs> you say, well, how do you know? It's not a mental understanding concept thing. It's, it's in the heart. And, and People can't explain uh, in any... They just say, I know. I know I'm born again. I know that God has accepted me. So the Holy Spirit comes to give us this assurance that we are saved. If there is no evidence of a change in one's life, 
If there is no assurance of salvation, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Is the person saved? Has a spiritual transaction actually taken place? You see, if we're, if we're caring for people, pastoring just a small group of people, or we have friends who are Christians, we need to be sure that they, they have the right thing. See, some people wander into church and start listening or singing, and they think, because I'm doing this, I'm a Christian. Well, I've just assured you that that is not the truth. There must be evidence of salvation. Now, I'm not here trying to convince people they're not born again. That's not the purpose of what I'm saying. But we need to have an assurity because if we think we're saved and we're not, it feeds into this thing about losing our salvation. If we are soundly saved, the argument is you can't lose it. You understand where I'm driving at with this particular point? Are you saved? Scripture tells us, doesn't it, that even the demons believe and shudder. And we know that the demons in the synagogue, when Jesus went in, they said, we know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So they knew it because they couldn't get saved, even if they knew who he was. It wasn't possible for them. So anyone can go to church and claim that they're a Christian. Well, there must be evidence of salvation. There must be those supernatural signs, a work of the Holy Spirit within them. There must be that personal uh, assurance that one is saved, you know. And there must be a demonstration, a change in someone's life. Now, you're thinking, is this important? Yes, Scripture says the way we would talk to or speak to or judge even Christians is a whole lot different from how we would speak to or relate to or judge a non-Christian. So sometimes I've come across Christians and they've lived some real terrible lives. So I sometimes have to go home and think, are they really Christians? I mean, I don't know. Only God knows who are his. That's what the scripture says. But see, judgment begins in the house of God. And, and we've got to think, well, if this person isn't a Christian, I've got to treat them in this way. But if they are a Christian, I have a responsibility to say, this is unacceptable as a Christian. And Paul is even stronger, doesn't he? You say, if they continue in living like that, we're to draw ourselves away from them and not encourage them in that particular sin. So it gets a bit complicated, but it's important that we think through these things. The second point I need to raise with you, the first being that salvation is a, an act, it's something takes place. The, the second thing is, I want to talk about the two kinds of righteousness that a Christian uh, will, well, he encounters then when he gets saved. The first kind of righteousness is called imputed righteousness. It is a righteousness that is ascribed to us by God himself. So when you put your faith into Jesus Christ as your personal saviour, he ascribes you righteous. He declares you to be righteous. 
the word is imputed. It's easy to remember. He puts it on you. He puts righteousness on you. Why does he do this? Because we're not righteous. So he says, I want to clothe you in righteousness because I want a relationship with you. I have to clothe you in that so I can approach you and meet with you. Uh, and a nice illustration of this is when the prodigal son returns. Uh, he returns back to the father and he's pretty filthy, I can imagine, after the journey and feeding the pigs and everything else he did and the mess he got into. So he's, 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 he's a filthy young man, really. But what the father does as soon as he meets him, he puts a robe on him, shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger. So he covers up the filth with the garment. He doesn't say, go and have a good shower first and then I'll put the coat on you. He simply wraps it around him, which is a picture of us. <laughs> we didn't come in a very good state and he put, he put the garment around us so when he looks at us, he sees righteousness. Garments of righteousness. This says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, who has become for us, this is Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God? That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Christ's righteousness then has been given to us. Now, Christ was perfect. Righteous is another way of saying in right standing before God, holy in his presence. So he has been made unto us righteousness. So as soon as you receive Christ as your saviour, he clothed you in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. He's also made unto you holiness. There's, again, several definition meanings of holiness. One of them is to be separated. So straight away, as soon as we've come and received Christ, God has separated us from all of the people making us holy, separated unto God. And the third thing he is for us is our redemption, that Christ has paid to God the redemptive price for our lives. He has been made unto us righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So as Christians, you can now say that my life is hidden in Christ. Now, you might have heard that expression and thought, what on earth does that mean, my life is hidden in Christ? Christ lived a certain way. He did certain things. He spoke a certain way. He suffered in certain ways, and he died. So that was his life, what he did, what he said, how he lived his life. I look at your life, and it's nothing like that. But he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will put you inside of Christ. So when I look at you, what I see is that Christ and the way he lived is superimposed on the way that you lived. So you walked like Jesus. You have talked like Jesus. You have acted like Jesus, suffered like Jesus, and died like Jesus. That's how God sees you. He sees you like that. Oh, you think, oh, wretched man that I am. No, you're not wretched. Oh, you do stuff wrong. Of course you do. 
But that's not how God sees you. You've got to see how God sees you. And he sees you hidden in Christ. And he looks at the life of Christ and how he lived, and he sees you living in that same way. He lived his life for you. He lived in your place. He went to the cross for you. He lived the whole of his life for you. It's important that we know how God sees us and that we understand that. It's a bit like um, when, when a couple get married, everything that's his becomes hers, and everything that's hers becomes his, unless you signed a prenuptial, but that's not scriptural at all, is it? So, so you, 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 the two of you become one. It's like there's no separation. Everything that's his is hers, and hers is his, and, and you're, you're in this thing together. You two, it says in Scripture, have become one flesh. It's as though there is no separation of you. That's how God sees a couple in that sense. And, of course, the Word of God says that Christ and the church are one in spirit. Okay, so we are one with Christ. That's how he sees us. Now, you think, what are you building here, Phil? Well, I'm building a case to say it's very difficult, if even impossible, for you to lose this salvation. And the, 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 there's a very strong building up of an argument here. So God the Father has granted then to every believer everything, it says, that is necessary to partake in Christ's divine nature. You have everything already given to you to partake in his divine nature. What is that saying? That's saying, listen, you don't actually have to sin ever again. Now, we're growing up, and we will, and possibly we always will. We're not going to sin, possibly sins of commission so much, but things of omission. We're going to miss some stuff. Uh, you know, there's two types of sin. Uh, there's transgressions where we choose to sin. We've looked at this in previous weeks. We choose to do it. That's not a good thing. Then there, there's things that are called sins where we simply miss the mark. We just, we just missed it. Maybe we didn't know. Maybe we didn't realize. They're still sins as far as God's concerned, but they're sins as opposed to uh, transitions, transgressions. Now, it says in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, his divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Great passage of scripture. God isn't holding out anything. He isn't, he isn't saying, oh, I'll give you this if you do certain things or if you act in a certain way. He's saying, it's freely yours. It's yours. Now, it comes through a knowledge of Christ. So if you don't bother understanding or learning about Christ, you don't know what the promises are. But as we dig into the scriptures and we find all the precious promises, they're yours. They're yours in Christ because we have 
received his divine nature. The second kind of righteousness, the first was an imputed one. The second one is what we call an outworked righteousness. Hmm. This isn't gifted to us. This is where you've got to do some work. So the first one is imputed. He, he clothes us with garments of righteousness. The second one is an outworked righteousness. It is the actual good that we do. It's very similar to holiness. You see, there's a holiness that separates us unto God, and there's another holiness that is the purity of life. So he doesn't give us purity of life. He gives us the potential to live pure lives because we have to work that one out. So there's, uh, there's a righteousness that we have to work out and a, a purity, a holiness that we have to work out. We have to crucify the self-life where the self seeks to assert itself again. I don't want that wall painted red. I want it green. Oh, the father wants it green. Okay, it's going to be green. Okay, there's that, that transformation that's taking place on the inside. I don't want to go and talk to that person. You will talk to that person. Okay, it's, it's this working out. It's this uh, crucifying of the self. It is the love of our neighbor. <laughs> Remember they asked the question of Jesus, who's our neighbor? Oh, he says, your enemies are your neighbor. Of course they are, you know, so to a Jew, it was the Samaritans. Everyone is your neighbor, everyone. No one, no one slips under the radar. You have to work it out with everyone as best as you can. And the third thing is the fear of the Lord. Not, not the fear like this, but, but fear that you respect him for who he is and you walk before him in that way. It's the work of what we call sanctification. Remember that? We looked at this before. It's the second part of, of salvation. We said there were three parts to it. There's the past, the present, and the future salvation. And this is the, the present salvation, which is the work of sanctification. Our day-to-day -day salvation. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. We said that this past salvation was there was a specific time and day when you received Christ as your Savior. That's when you were justified. Then there is this future uh, event that's going to take place when we will see Jesus and we will step into an eternity with him and we'll say, I'm saved. I am saved. Today, I am saved for all eternity. I am with Jesus forever. And we call that our glorification. But this thing in the middle, we call this sanctification. Meanwhile, day after day, we're being saved. Saved. Not from death unto life, that's a past event, but saved from ourselves, from our fallen nature. I'm going to suggest this to you now, and I believe this. You don't have to believe this, but this is what I believe. I believe that when the New Testament speaks of losing our salvation, it is referring to losing our battle against sin and allowing it to have dominion and rule over us. There is a historic event when you were saved. There is a futuristic event when you will be saved. But day by day, we are being saved. To lose our salvation is to 
capitulate in the battle and hand it over to Satan to rule us. That's what I believe losing our salvation is. It's this salvation that can be lost. You give up the fight. You stop battling. The work of him saving you on a daily basis, you say, I don't want this anymore. But losing the salvation that refers to our daily battle has no effect, I believe, on our eternal destiny. I believe such a transaction took place at salvation that we're saved eternally. We are secure in that. What does it mean then to lose our salvation on a daily day basis, to lose this battle? It means that our contact with God is broken. If you continue to sin and take no account of sin, you can't have fellowship with him. It's broken. He would love to have fellowship with you, but you've created something that separates the two of you. If you're separated, you can no longer hear his voice. You've lost contact with his direction. And you can no longer call upon his grace and power because of the life that you live. It can be regained. It says, if we confess our faults and go to him, we can pull down this and we can regain that relationship with him. And if appropriate, putting matters right with other Christians too. You see, we can break a relationship with him and put it right, but we've broken lots of relationships down here in the process. And God says, mm -mm, you want to get it right with me, you get it right with them. You cannot say you love me if you don't love your brother and sister. So get it right. So he actually withholds this, this forgiveness, as it were, until we work some stuff out down here. Many verses which seem to indicate that salvation can be lost do in fact apply to the sanctifying work of salvation and have no effect on our final destiny. Now, before we look at all the verses that say you can, you can lose your salvation, that'll come in part two this evening, I'll better look at some verses that say uh, it's almost, well, it is impossible to, to actually lose it. I want to take you to 1 John 10, 27 and 30. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. Now, you, you realize the definite statements that Jesus is making here. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we're suggesting that we snatch ourselves out of God's hand. Jesus is emphatic. He says, when I've got you, you're not going anywhere. 
you might be a really miserable Christian, but you're not going to go anywhere because I'm not losing any that he has given me. I'm holding you firm in my hand. There's no caveat to this verse of scripture or these couple of verses of scripture. There's nothing that says, oh, this is true only if you live a holy life, only if you keep progressing on in God. There's no caveats at all. It's like, this is it. I've got you and I'm holding you secure. There's another one in 1 John 5, 11 to 15. It's almost as emphatic again, definite statements. God has given us, he says, eternal life. And this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may know that you have eternal life. This is the assurance. See the very positive, definite way he's talking. This is the assurance we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, Whatever we ask for, we know that we have what we ask for. He uses the word no, 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 again and again and again in those verses. He talks about an assurance. We know something for certain. When we believe, it says, in the Son of God, he, God, gives us eternal life. How can we know that we have it if we could lose it? If you're going to support the argument of losing it, you better be able to state very clearly when it's lost. What must you do to lose it? Don't give me some general thing. You have to be specific. Like, I was all right until I got here, and then I lost it. See, it doesn't, it doesn't hold very soundly to us. At best, if that were true, we could only hope we have salvation, not know we have it. The third little example of a couple of verses in Romans 6 and 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a gift that is given us. And then in Romans 11.29, it says, For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. He doesn't take gifts back. Any gift that he gives you, by the nature of being a gift, he can't take it back. You can't take a gift back if it wasn't a gift otherwise. As soon as it leaves your hands and becomes the property of a person, if you took it back, you would be stealing and God says, if I give you a gift, I don't take it back either. Once the gift is given, God will not withdraw it. This also applies, I believe, to eternal life. Some difficulty that people have with this whole thing is they say, well, if once saved, you're always saved, you can do anything you like. And it doesn't, no, you can't. You can't do anything you like because of the fact that a transaction has taken place 
by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. You just can't do that. It just You're not at liberty to do that anymore. You might think you have the freedom to choose, but you'll find the Holy Spirit will contend with you all of the time. And also, don't forget, if you hold this and you do anything you like, you will, you will be disqualified for what God wants to do in this life. And you'll miss out on so much. Your fellowship with him, your direction, his blessing, you forfeit all of that in this life if you hold this attitude, I can just do what I like. If you persist with that and believe that, we've looked in previous weeks that God will discipline and judge his children. You think he'll just let you do anything you like until you get into a state where you're just drifted so far away, you've rejected so much. Oh, no, no. No, no, he doesn't let you do that. He's on your case. He will send the Holy Spirit first to judge the situation and then to bring discipline so you never get to that place. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. God judges his children. So after the break, we're going to look at a number of the verses that often quote that seem that we can lose our salvation. So we'll just bring it to a halt there. Have a little break for 20 minutes or so. In this part then, we'll, um, we'll look at a number of verses that are often quoted that seem to indicate that eternal life can be lost. We'll look at three groups of people those who renounce their faith, those who abandon the faith, and those who corrupt others. Firstly, then, those who renounce their faith or their belief. Those who renounce and abandon their faith, we have a name for it. They're called apostates. The primary passage that we can look at which would support the argument that a Christian can lose his salvation is, of course, in Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 6. We've looked at it in previous studies on the warnings. We read here about believers who have mastered the elementary teachings about Christ, but who have fallen away. Let's read it together. Hebrews 6, I'll read verse 1, and then I'll leave a few verses out and go down to 4, 5, and 6. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Let's go on to maturity. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. In verses 4 and 5, the verses state very clearly that the people they're talking about are born-again believers. It says they've been enlightened, so they see they have tasted 
the heavenly gift, the gift of salvation. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. He's come and entered into them. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God and they have tasted the power of the coming age. Soundly born again people. Verse 6 then, things have changed. It says, despite God's blessing to them, they have fallen away. And we are told here that they cannot be brought back to repentance. Note what it says, and don't read any more than what it says. They have fallen away, and it says, we cannot bring them back to a place where they can repent again for what they have done. Nowhere in these verses does it say they are eternally lost. It doesn't say that. Now you can say, well, I, I, I can read that in there. I'm not saying you can't, but you're reading it in there. Let's be honest. If it is such an important thing, why isn't it stated more clearly? And just say, these people will forfeit eternal life. That would be so simple to do that. But God doesn't write it like that. He says, and what he says, he says, he says these people can't come back to a place where they can repent. It's as though they've fallen back so far, they can't come back to repentance. They're back here, they can't come back in that relationship with God which they once had because they've, they're not allowed to come back. Repentance, we know, is a change of mind. They've got themselves into something now that they can't change their mind. They can't come back, as it were. They can't move forward in repentance. Repentance is something, it appears, is granted to us by God. Falling back so far, he doesn't grant repentance to us again. These people are lost as far as God is concerned for this life. There is no more salvation process going on in their lives because they've fallen so back, far back, they can't repent and come forward again. It, it's not working. If they had been, it's inconceivable that they would not have been stated that they had lost their salvation. Who are these people? They're not normal backsliders. Okay, we have to consider these people who we call backsliders. A backslider is someone who turns from God. Um, it takes time. They stop going to church. They stop sharing about Christ, even telling others that they are Christians. Uh, they do nothing. They just live their lives just in the natural, as it were, out of their senses. But if you were to ask them at any time, what do you think about Jesus? Tell me what you really believe. They'd probably still say that he was the son of God and he died for me. I just don't want to live with him in my life anymore. This is what we would term a backslider. They've slidden. Now, are they lost? They seem to still have faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour, but they just choose not to live like that. What an insult to God. Are they lost because they have that attitude? These people that we're reading about here 
they're more than backsliders. They say uh, they no longer want to be Christians. They've come right away. They disown Christ, as it were. They renounce their connection and allegiance to him totally. They want nothing to do with him. Is there a difference between the two? A backslider that says, well, yeah, I suppose I really still believe in Jesus and that he died on the cross for me. And someone who says, I want absolutely nothing to do with him at all. You say, oh, Phil, you've just told us the point of where we can mark it and say, these are in and those are out. Oh, well, all right, you're bold if you can, if you can say that. Scripture says, uh, first it looks a, a bit odd, this statement. It says, they crucify afresh the Son of God and subject him to public disgrace. What, what does that mean? I'll have to read this to you because it's a, a bit of a mouthful. It says this, those who after all this spiritual experience have apostatized cannot have the same experience a second time. The truth and influence of the gospel has lost its power to bring them back to a place of repentance. You see, when they first got saved, the very act and everything that Christ did and the work of the Holy Spirit brought them to a place where repentance took place and they could receive Jesus Christ as their saviour and they were born again. It seems now that they've fallen back so far, they want absolutely nothing to do with him. Christ can't die again for them. And, and, and that has lost all its power to bring them back to repentance. See, what brings you back to repentance is when you just muse for a minute of what Christ has done, it brings you back to that place. It, brings, it has power in it. But somehow they've fallen into a place where the power of the gospel of salvation has no more power to bring them back to a place. And of course, Christ can't be crucified again so the power can be revived in them. It's not possible. He died once for all. And if you've missed out now or lost that, you cannot have that again. But the text doesn't say they're eternally lost. I wish it did, and then we wouldn't have a big discussion about it. It would be settled. But it says, it is impossible to bring them back within the orbit of God's blessing for this life. That's what losing one's salvation is. Fallen so far back, that the gospel hasn't got the power in it to bring them forward to that place of repentance. It's gone. Was Esau like this? A man who rejected the things of God, but then when he wanted it, he couldn't get it. Even though he sought it with tears, it was though salvation wasn't offered to him. God, in his graciousness, said, no, you do not receive this blessing because you spurned it in the first place and you rejected it. It's not coming to you again. Oh, you say, surely God would, would not do that. I mean, he is so loving. 
well, he is so loving, but he, he sets down the rules and the conditions of this covenant relationship with him. So we can slip back to a place where we can't come into the orbit of God's grace and blessing anymore. But I still think we're saved, even in that place. Now, what we're thinking and what we're doing in that place is, is something else. It seems that the prodigal son, when he went away, he took himself out of the orbit, what I would call that, I know it's a funny word to use, like the orbit of God's blessing. It, it, it didn't touch him. He, he removed himself from the blessing of the father's home and the privileges of being a son. He removed himself from that, and so he couldn't be influenced by God where he went. That's what he wanted to get far enough away that he could live a wild life, not be subject to anyone, at least of all his father, and do what he liked. Took himself into that place. Is God telling us in this particular passage that for people who have got there, is he saying don't waste your time to try and bring them back? because they've gone too far. You can't bring them back. They're not lost eternally, but in this life, you can't bring them back. They've gone too far away to be brought back into relationship with me. Here's a major question then I must ask you. How merciful is God is he really as kind and as merciful as I'm trying to convince you that he is? Is he really that kind? Is he really that merciful that someone could just fall away, yet his grace extends to them for the next world? Okay, there we go. This is the hard bit now. So take a deep breath. Keep a bit of that tea for later. Our problem comes when we think that God is like us. Never think that ever again. Never compare yourself with him and say, well, if I did that, surely God would do this. No, 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 that's nonsense. God is, is something else. He is something else. He has to tell us what he's like. This is what we're like. We boast in our righteousness. And we, at times, we gloat at others' unrighteousness. Don't like to admit that. It's like, well, I wouldn't do that. I live like this. Do you see what she's done? Do you know what he's doing? Do you know what they've done? And in a, in a weird sort of way, it makes us feel good. That's just the fallen nature. That's not a God's way of living. It makes us feel good when others fall when others sin. I must confess it of myself. You see, if someone preaches and they preach really well, I feel bad about them. If they don't preach too well, I feel good about myself. <laughs> now, it's perverse. It's part of the fallen nature. And because that's not an excuse, I lash myself every time I do it and know that I've still got some room to grow here, God, 
And as I read your word, your word can change me. It can make me be different. And so we have to be careful. We plead our own case with God and we rejoice over the fact that we're not as bad as our neighbours. Of course, what about such and such and what they did? Of course, I would never do that. While we oppose his case, we make him out to be more evil than us. I would never do that. What are you saying is worse then? Uh, God's judgment of what is worse might be what you're doing, not what they're doing. They might be doing something obvious. You're doing something sly and sneaky and devious. In Luke 18, 11, Jesus points this out to us. Remember the Pharisee who stood up and he prayed about himself. Do you remember that man? He said this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector man. I'm nothing like that. that. That's the point that I'm driving home. How perverse. How evil. Contrary to love completely. Love doesn't seek its own. It seeks the blessing of others all of the time. It seeks the blessing of others all of the time. That's why you think, mm, I'll pray for them Arr, through gritted teeth. <laughs> See, you're not really seeking the blessing of God on them. You're doing what you know to be right. If our neighbour is caught in sin, our, sure, our thought should not be to condemn him, but to pray for him and to help him. That's our first thought. Our thoughts should be that it would be better that we lose our salvation than he loses his. Can I say that again? Our thoughts should be that it would be better if we lost our salvation than he was to lose his give you two examples. Moses, Exodus 32, 32. Listen what Moses says. He says, but now, he's, he's, he's petitioning God on behalf of the nation of Israel. He says this, but now, please forgive this sin, he says, but if not, then blot me out of the book that you've written. He says, forgive them and curse me. Don't curse them, he says. Bless them and curse me. Blot me out of the book of life. And doesn't Paul say an identical thing in the New Testament? Listen what Paul says in Romans 9.3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. See, he was praying for people who hated him and hated God. Well, the God they worship wasn't the true God. They hated the God who was the God of Jesus. That's not who they were worshipping. So he said, I would rather lose my salvation because I think so much about them. Is it then not permissible to punish evil? Because this is what these verses are inferring. 
God says, I'm going to punish them. And he says, no, don't punish them. Don't do that. Punish me, not them. Is it not proper to punish sin? Surely it must be. Surely it's only right the wicked should perish and be punished and the righteous go free. To do otherwise would give an occasion to lawlessness. If you don't punish those who break the law, you'll give an excuse to lawlessness. Mm. What Jesus said in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, 38 to 41. It says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Say so that's ridiculous. These people are doing evil things and you're asking me to bless them. What's wrong with you, God? Punish them. They're doing something wrong. He says, no. That's not what Christ would do. Christ would help them the other mile. He wouldn't resist them when they attacked him or said evil things. He didn't say a word in his own defense. He should have spoken up. They were, it was unjust what they were doing. He should have spoken up and, no, no, forgive them, Lord. Remember? Forgive them. For they, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. That's what we have to do. He's not looking. Christ is not looking for revenge and punishment. Nor is God. So when someone slips all the way back and says, oh, I don't believe in that rubbish anymore, God isn't looking for revenge and punishment. He's not. We would. We would do it. We'd say, kick them out. We don't want them here. But he doesn't say that. He says, come on. Come on. Come on. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. I understand. It's all right. He is grieving more over the sin of his offender than over the loss or offence to himself. Isn't that amazing? And he does this, that he might recall those offended from their sin. You see how gracious he is. He doesn't, he doesn't punish them. He just waits. There's no way back in this world. They have burnt their bridges. But one day he'll meet them. They will stand before Christ. And he will love them. And forgive them. I can't see anything else. I can't see anything else. Rather than avenge the wrongs they themselves have suffered. Therefore they put off the form of their own righteousness and put on a form of the other person. Praying for those who persecute us. 
blessing those who curse us, doing good to those who do evil against us, prepared to pay the penalty or the compensation for their very enemies, that they might be saved. God's something else, isn't he? I mean, he is, you see. We wouldn't let them into heaven. No way. <laughs> Rubbish. Get out. How dare you? You know, we don't even let them in our church if they mess about too much. Get out of here. You can't offend like that. Just get out. No, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. See, if this is the gospel and the example of Jesus Christ, Matthew 5 and 44, but I tell you, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. See, that's what the Father does. Those that persecute him, he loves them. He doesn't cast them to a lost eternity. He loves them. He has gifted them eternal life. They are saved. They are his children. He's not going to take that back from them. They have treated him abysmally, disgracefully. They have ignored him and they've thrown the blood of Christ, as it were, back in his face. But he says, but that's, that's not me. I love, I love you. I love you. You see, if we're expected to treat our enemies in the way that Christ did, how much will God do it? A thousand times more than what we ever will. Because he's God. He's not offended by these people in the same way that we're offended. I get that. It's put in language like the children of Israel made him angry. I understand that. But did he cast them all into hell? Those 1.2 million people he brought out of captivity in Egypt, his treasured possession, my, my first son, he calls them. This is my family. My, what's it? And they, they rebel against him. They want nothing to do with him. So he throws them all into hell. No, no. It says they angered him. They gave him no pleasure. They refused to enter into their rest. They refused to live by faith. They grumbled and complained and moaned all the time, every day of their lives. And yet he saved them. They weren't lost. What about those who abandoned the faith? Uh, there's a few verses on that. 1 Timothy 4.1, it says this, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Oh. How deceived can you be? I was, I was talking to someone today, and this young person is pretty convinced that the church that she was part of was a cult. Pretty much convinced of that. Well, is she lost? Because she's followed some Doctrines of demons, some confusion. 1 Timothy 5.15, it says, Some have already turned away to follow Satan. 2 Timothy 4.3 and 4, 
For time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And James 4 and 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? In not one of these examples does it say they're lost. It doesn't say that. It should do. If it was true, it should say it, so we would know clearly what we can and can't do. Draw a line in the sand, please, God, and, and make it clear to us. There's no line to draw. He can't draw a line because no line needs to be drawn. On the contrary, God is faithful. Oh, I thought, how many references are there to, to the faithfulness of God? So you know what we do now when we want to know all the references? We Google it, don't we? We Google it, okay. Google said there's 116. Uh, and I looked and there were, they went on and on and on and on. So you haven't got 116 here tonight. Lamentations 3 and 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. See, they must have done something that deserved being consumed by God. And God is a fire. He would consume them in his fire. But he says, for his compassion never fails. Malachi 3.6. I, the Lord, I do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, you are not destroyed. They deserve to be destroyed. The very way he's put it, they deserve to be destroyed. But because of his faithfulness, he will not destroy them. Psalm 19 and 14. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will not forsake his inheritance. He won't do it. He won't do it. They might deserve it, but he won't do it. Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all that he has made. Romans 3 and 3, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. What a strong verse. Wow. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. When he saved you, no matter what you did, he kept you. He kept you. He kept you. And in the end, you were presented blameless. Oh, what a salvation. What a gospel we got. Oh, it's brilliant. What about those who corrupt others? In Matthew 18 and 6, we read this. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What a, what a picture, eh? 
It's like, this is what I would like to do with you. You shouldn't be on this planet right now because you're leading young ones astray. It was a bit like Ananias and Sapphira, possibly why he did what he did to them. He hung a millstone round their neck and he dropped them in the sea and they were no more a problem to young Christians or the fledgling church anymore. But they never lost eternal life. They lost this life. And finally, those who deliberately keep on sinning. We've dealt with this, haven't we? We did it in Lesson 5. I'll remind you what the verse says, Hebrews 10, 26 and 29. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only the fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. I said then, we shouldn't water this down. This is strong words, and we need to stay with what he says here. Severe discipline. A fearful expectation of judgment. Judgment begins, remember, in the house of God. And of raging fire that consumes the enemies of God. God will discipline his children. The way he sees fit. However, being a recipient of the vengeance of God does not mean a loss of salvation. It's an awful thing to fall into the hands of a vengeful God. But when he's finished mangling some of these people, they're still saved. They're still saved. Finish there. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can partner with us by making a secure online donation. Also feel free to study any of our past modules that are now available on our website. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.